Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedi. Hello, I'm a Mac. Hello, I'm a Mac. You're a Mac too? I'm not a Macintosh too. I'm a I'm a Power Mac. You oh. might be a Mac too, on the other hand. No, I'm a MacBook Pro. <laughs> You're a pro, right? We're both Macs. You know why? Why, my friend? Because they work, damn it. This is the thing that you and I have been running into. As we go around you and listen to other shows, how frustrated have you got? Well, I don't want to criticize a specific person. I'll just do it in general. And that is, I find sites where you want to hear the show, and you have to click through 27 different windows to figure out where the content is. And when you do, you find out it is specifically encoded to ignore 30 million Mac users. Isn't that amazing? They basically have Windows Media, which even on a Windows box, I mean, basically works. But at this point, with the ubiquitousness of QuickTime and the smoothness with with which it works, why would anybody use anything else? I don't understand. What I don't understand is the fact that there are versions of Windows Media Player that work on Macs, and they support standard audio content. Only some of these places don't use that. They use other versions that don't support the Mac. I think what it boils down to, Gene, is a lot of people doing podcasts are not necessarily technologically savvy. They're getting into this field without any real background, certainly in computer technology, where you and I have been playing in the computer sandbox for a long time. And certainly I know that you've been doing audio stuff on a Mac for years. I'm, well, I'm a hardcore audio fanatic. Actually, most people don't know that a lot of the music on the show is stuff that I compose late at night here, sort of messing around with audio units plugins on the Mac. But we both have real background in audio engineering, and that's something I think that gives us a leg up on a lot of other people doing any kind of podcasts. Well, the one thing we have here is we want to make our content easy for you to listen to out there. Mm -hmm. So, for example, our past episodes are all encoded in MP3. That means if you have a Mac, if you have a Windows computer, if you have a Linux computer, you can hear it. Oh, it gets even better. If you have any kind of a computer that can burn CDs, what I know some of my friends have been doing, Gene, is that they take the MP3 files and they burn them onto a CD-ROM as data because these days a lot of car CD players will actually play CDRs full of MP3s. Absolutely. That's how they listen to the show, a lot of them. Indeed. And we don't charge for the downloads, okay? That's right. We don't monetize the downloads. And maybe we're making a mistake. Some people say, well, you can make some real money that way. That might be true, but we are asking advertisers to pay for what advertisers we have to pay for producing the show. And we feel the listeners, like with regular radio, should not have to pay a single dime. Now, if we were to go on satellite radio or something like that, and this is certainly among the options we consider, you would be paying an overall flat fee for all the content, the 120 to 160 stations. So what you pay for our show would be minimal. It really amounts to like pennies. Sure, sure. In the end. Does that mean we could make money? Hey, that's a thought. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and... We have just been telling you, in case you've just discovered the show, how easy we try to make the show for you to listen to. We put everything on a single page or two at our website so you don't have to navigate through lots of dark and 
dingy windows to figure out what's going on. And we try to do something different, and that is we don't try to act like Larry King or become the Larry Kings of paranormal radio. That means we will say things that we believe about something, even if it's not pretty, okay? And we get into trouble for it. I mean, we get we get people emailing us saying, why did you say this? Or why did you make fun of this person or that event? And at this point, you'd hope people would understand that you and I, well, we're both New Yorkers, so we've got that hard-edged New York thing going on where we don't suffer fools lightly. What are you going to say? That That's the bottom line, and it comes through, I guess, in our interview style, and if some people can't take it, then uh, go listen to a softball show. And the other thing, even a very gentle criticism can have a strange backlash, like mm -hmm. without mentioning the name of the book, you commented that the production quality of a certain book covering the UFO subject wasn't very good. It was a self-published book. Yeah. And it's very expensive to do it yourself because you have to pay for the production expenses, printing, and hopefully pay an editor. Now, a quality editor for a book can get several thousands of dollars for one book project. And that least, might be yeah. beyond what a small publisher or a self-publisher can pay. So you made the comment, okay, the book could use some editing. Wow, what a firestorm. We Just were condemned oh online by people who actually never heard your comment. They heard someone who told them about the comment. In fact, somebody out there was even complaining that we knew nothing about the subject, that we conducted interviews on this show and didn't know anything about the paranormal or UFOs or whatever. So the, the real question there, of course, and what I shot back to these people in email is, who knows anything about this topic? Is there a degree offered in paranormal studies? So the thing is, Gene, you've got people who say, well, you guys aren't experienced ufologists. You're not experienced paranormal experts. And what I shot back to them, Gene, and I'll say this to our audience, what in God's name is an experienced ufologist or paranormal expert? Is there a degree offered on these topics? Maybe go to the state licensing commission. You know, go to your state and say, I would like a license as a qualified ufologist. You know, I want to hang up my shingle and everything. Gene Steinberg, ufologist. David Biedney, ufologist. No, it's, it's silly. Now, there are guys like Stan Friedman that have been studying this stuff forever and a day, who by the benefit of many years put into the topic, know something about it. We had uh, Dr. David Jacobson, knows a heck of a lot about abductions. Doesn't know everything, but knows a lot of stuff. And when he states an opinion, it's backed up by experience. In this realm, you know, what, what is considered experience? You and I have been interested in this stuff since we were young. I'm a quote-unquote experiencer. I've talked about one of my experiences on the show, but it's not the only one I've had. I've had more than a couple. In fact, I've had more than a few. So the thing is, as someone who's seen strange things, experienced strange things, and wants to understand them, reads up on the subject slogs through the piles of, in many cases, just junk material, just bad books, really bad videos. Gene, Netflix has a ton of UFO-related videos, and I've been gradually working my way through the library, and man, let me tell you, there is some seriously cheesy stuff out there. It's almost painful, really. Mm. Speaking of strange people, by the way, we have a guest who actually has a site devoted to mysterious people. His name is Brian Houghton, and he has a site called MysteriousPeople.com. And we're going to learn about those mysterious people. And that doesn't include us, by the way. Coming, we're not mysterious. We're just weird. Coming up next 
on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Today on the Paracast, we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, strange people. We have Brian Houghton with us, who is the webmaster of a really fascinating website called Mysterious People. And Brian, I've read your bio on the site, and it turns out, like so many of our other guests, you got an introduction to things paranormal at a tender teenage age. Actually, you were apparently reading a Flying Saucers from Outer Space at the age of 12. Tell us how that came to happen. Well, that tended to happen because my dad used to bring, this was in the mid-70s, 74, 75, he used to bring home books from work for me, um, UFO books. He wasn't interested himself, so I don't, I don't know where he got them from. But one of those books was Kehoe's Frying Saucers from Outer Space, and, yeah, I'd have been 11, 10 or 11, and he brought that home, and I read through it. And that was one of the things that started me off on my interest in the paranormal. So since then, you've been curious about the people, the personalities involved in this realm. Is that correct? It is, yeah. It started kind of with UFOs uh, and programs like, I don't know if you remember, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, um, In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Um, oh, I love those shows. Those were yeah, me too. You I wish they were those? still on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany, and as David said, we have Brian Houghton. He's the proprietor, webmaster of MysteriousPeople.com, but I want to also mention, before David and I forget about this, he's also author of a forthcoming book called Hidden History, Lost Civilizations, Secret Knowledge, and Ancient Mysteries, and we'll get into that. So the segue here, you started out with UFOs, and but now we're moving to this website of yours, Mysterious People. What's the transition here? Well, the transition really is kind of a gap in interest with UFOs. I went to university, studied archaeology, and kind of was persuaded that most of this stuff was, you know, not worth the study and not serious and um, didn't have anything to it. And I think the 
my interest started to come back when I, I started to buy magazines like 14 Times and UFO magazines again, those kind of things. Um, when I realized that archaeology and science doesn't have all the answers, and I, I came back to it. Obviously, it's a natural thing for me to be interested in, and it, the interest went away for a while, but it came back again, even after studying archaeology. So it's obviously quite strong. How do you mean the interest went away? Did you get caught up with other things in life? I, I got caught up with things, especially especially amongst archaeologists. They're extremely negative in, t in terms of uh, psychic powers, ancient civilizations, UFOs. You won't get a conversation about these things out of an archaeologist. They just don't acknowledge them. So I was kind of discouraged, I would say, when I was in company with these people. Well... I've been looking at your website, and I suspect Gene has as well, and there's a really interesting array of people on here. Out of curiosity, in the last 20, 30 years, who do you feel are some of the most compelling, mysterious people that you've encountered? Um, well, the first one would be actually Princess Caribou, which uh, I don't think has any connection with paranormal phenomena at all. But just uh, for a working-class girl in uh, in England, a uh, daughter of a, uh, a weaver or something, and she couldn't read or write, yet she pretended to be this princess from Indonesia and fooled all the scientists, the doctors, the high society of the time for many months and made up her own language, traveled and lived with these uh, high society people. And um, really, this is it's not paranormal, but it's an almost supernatural thing to be able to do when you have no education, you have no connections. And she walked into uh, the company of these people and was able to make them believe she was a princess from, uh, you know, Indonesia. That would be one, certainly. I think there was a film about it with Phoebe Cates as well. She sounds like a human oddity. Yeah, that's what, that's what I describe her as. That's the only thing she ever did. She went back and lived a normal life after that. Well, you know, for years, Jean uh, basically uh, claimed to be the leader of the gingerbread men. I, I still don't believe him, though. I think that he's more likely to be leader of the cookie people. Right. Actually, the cookie monster people. Is, <laughs> we wanted to mention that. Another person, one who interests me, and I'll give you a little background, ladies and gentlemen, a model and talk show host by the name of Candy Jones. Okay, I'm going to ask Brian about her in a moment. But the thing that maybe people in this business might remember is there was a talk show host by the name of Long John Nebel who pioneered the paranormal talk show format in all-night radio. He, he basically pioneered all-night radio. And, of course, the other famous person who did that was Barry Gray. Now, today, of course, we have the Coast to Coast AM show. But Long John did it first. And in the latter years of his life, he married Candy Jones. And they did the show together. And when John became ill, she took over the show. And John died, I think, in the 1970s. Now, you mentioned Candy Jones on your site. Can you tell us some more stuff about her that maybe a lot of people don't know? Well, yeah, um um, before she was married to uh, Long John Nebel, uh, I think it was in the 40s, she was, I think, America's premier model, fashion model, and uh, she toured uh, with the U.S. Army, I think, in Hawaii, places like that, and uh, I think she made a few contacts with some military people at that time, and late 50s, early 60s, she... Uh, she was given kind of minor jobs to do, uh, like use her office as a mail drop, I think it was the FBI, 
and um, and this was it. This is all she had. You know, this is all they made her do. And and she married uh, Long John Neville, and I think it was 72, 1972. And I think immediately he noticed she had quite violent mood swings, and she suffered from insomnia. So he decided to try and hypnotise her. Uh, she made a very easy subject. He hypnotised her. And I think it was the first time in many months she had a good a good night's sleep. But this also led to um, strange, it's called hypnotic regression now, and uh, he regressed her back to childhood, and he started to find out about uh, another personality she, she had called Arlene. And this other personality um, was the opposite of Candy Jones, aggressive, sarcastic like this. And he also found out a strange tale of um, CIA mind control um, with a strange doctor who, uh, Donald Bain, who wrote a book about this, called um, Jensen, Gilbert Jensen. And apparently this Gilbert Jensen initially started by asking uh, Candy Jones to uh, deliver mail for the CIA. And then gradually, as he became more friendly with her, he... Uh, he gave her more important jobs, and I think he was injecting her, according to the uh, Donald Bain's book, with uh, experimental drugs and hypnotizing her and trying to make her into the perfect spy. And apparently she was trained as a CIA agent, hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat, murder with a hat pin, all this kind of stuff. And uh, she was given all these missions, but as Arlene, not as Candy Jones, it's important in this case, I think, that there are two personalities, according to uh, the hypnosis tapes and Donald Bain's book, uh, Arlene Grant, who is the aggressive CIA agent, and Candy Jones, the more passive model. So, yeah, it's a strange story. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me remind our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Brian Houghton, and he's proprietor, webmaster of MysteriousPeople.com. We've linked it at our website, by the way, at theparacast.com, so you can find that out there. He's also author of a forthcoming book called Hidden History, Lost Civilization, Secret Knowledge, and Ancient Mysteries, and we're talking right now about the late Candy Jones, and he has information about her because supposedly she had a double life. Now, this is this something where she was actually a multiple personality person, or did somebody hypnotize her to become Arlene, the alternate character, the CIA agent? It sounds like she had a uh, multiple personality to me, and it was brought out again by this hypnosis, I think. I think it initially began when she was, uh, she spent a lot of her childhood alone. Uh, her parents apparently were quite cruel. And she had one of these invisible childhood friends who she called Arlene. I think this is where it stems from. It was Arlene who was supposedly the, the agent, the CIA agent. Was it real though, or is it a disorder, an illusion? Mm, yeah. Well, 
it could be an illusion. Uh, if it's not real, then uh, it's made up, perhaps, by Long John Neville. Uh, but apparently the, uh, the tapes he made um, were aired on the radio at the time. So whether, whether it's a false memory or whether it's a real memory, I don't know. But there is a photograph, and Donald Bain reproduces it in uh, his book, of, uh, of Candy Jones in um, black dark makeup and a black wig as Arlene, as this other personality. So it, it doesn't prove, but it indicates that she uh, she was leading some kind of double life anyway. Well, the only reason I mention that is because Long John Nebel is notorious for perpetrating hoaxes on his radio show. There was an instance where Jim Mosley and Gray Barker were on the show, and Gray Barker, the late Gray Barker, was author of a book called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And John mentioned something about, well, they're not listening to us, or they won't cut us off. The actual quotation, I think, is in Jim's book, which is called Shockingly Close to the Truth. And I didn't hear the show itself, but I read the write-up. And at that point... This is when Long John was on WOR as an original radio station. Suddenly, music comes on, and the audio disappears. And I understand later this was a prank on the part of Long John to draw attention to his show. So this is not something that is above him. On the other hand, the fact that this extended to the point where people wrote books about it, I think that may indicate something more. There's another character out there who made the same kind of claim about being a CIA agent. You're reading my mind, Gene. Okay. Chuck <laughs> Barris, the, he's a game show host in the U.S. And there was a movie directed by George Clooney a few years ago called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, I believe. That's correct. And I love the movie. Sam Rockwell played a great imitation of Chuck Barris, but he claimed in this book on which the movie was based, that he had this second life as a CIA assassin. Do you think that was all made up or what? I, I, you'd have to look, again, you'd have to look for what, he, what evidence he has for it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, anybody can say it, and it comes down to what the evidence is. And I think in the case of, uh, the Can in Candy Jones's case, it's do you believe Long John Neville and do you believe Donald Bain, who says he has the tapes? Uh, I think if, if the tapes even exist, this is another question. I think this has been brought up before. Do, were there ever any tapes at all? Did, you know, did he hypnotize her and record it, or is it just a story? So if the tapes exist, if she said these things, apparently she didn't remember it later. But there, there is this, she wrote a letter also, I think, to her, um, to her attorney uh, saying that she couldn't talk about what she was involved in and if she died suddenly, she was asking for cover. So there are indications that something was happening. I, think there's an, I don't think it's a complete hoax. Okay. I really don't. Also, yeah. it seems far more elaborate than what Long John would usually do. We understand also Long John at this point was not in good health in the 1970s. Yeah. He died in 1978, and he was not in good health, and there were times where he'd come to the studio, and but basically, Candy Jones would do the show. He was in a wheelchair in the last few years oh, of his yeah. life, I believe. And so... 
at that point, I wonder how much influence he had, but we want to cover both ends. Looking at other people on your site, do you find anyone amongst these people who do you think really has some sort of strange ability, mysterious ability? I think any of the poltergeist cases um, would qualify because I think this is something, poltergeist activity is something that's been recorded for thousands of years and uh, with really the same characteristics and it doesn't matter which country it's from or which time period it's from, it displays the same characteristics. Uh, fires start, pools of water appear, um, objects fly around the room, bedclothes are torn away from people, things like this, and it's it's always centered around a person. And I think um, the French girl I have on my site, Angelique Cotton, was a 19th century peasant girl from Normandy. She actually uh, was able to lift huge objects with the power that was coming from this uh, this whatever it is, poltergeist activity. So any any of the, uh, the poltergeist people certainly would uh, completely mystifying to me. I don't know how where they get the power and how they and how it just because it just disappears as well. Uh, they have these abilities for a few months and they're gone and they lead a normal life after it. Now, Brian, that that person you're referencing, this was a case from uh, the mid 19th century. Yeah. Can can you think of anyone who perhaps falls to this category who is a little more contemporary in terms of there being things like actual video evidence? I mean, you couldn't videotape somebody in the mid 1800s, but certainly if we've had if, if there's been a believable or a reputable case of poltergeist activity in the last 20 years, there would be some hard evidence. So are you aware of any cases where this is indeed the situation? No, I'm not. Uh, apart from there's the Enfield pol poltergeist, which is from uh, 1977 from London, there are photographs from that, and there are tape recordings. But I'm not sure. Uh, it's a kind of clever, if you will, it's a clever kind of activity that seems to always avoid being filmed. I mean, as soon as someone has a camera, it malfunctions. Something happens behind the person taking the photograph. I think it's a little bit, bit like, I mean, how many photographs are there of head-on car collisions, you know? Not many. Hmm. Well, a head-on car collision, you can't really see, I mean, it's a completely entropic event, where if you've got poltergeist activity, if you've got an ongoing presence, you know, it would seem to me there'd be some way to potentially set up a camera. One of the things, Brian, that we do on the Paracast is we try to bring a little bit of sort of hard logical thinking and analysis to this topic. It's, it's a real important thing for us. Now, give me a, a, an example of a case that has fascinated me for, for many years where there is a very significant amount of photographic evidence and even film evidence. And it's someone who I looked for on your website and I didn't see. This, um, this was a fascinating case that happened in Brazil in the latter part of the 20th century with a, a psychic healer, surgeon really, by the name of Arigo. Have you heard of Arigo? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, I have. I was considering putting on the side, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a very well-documented case, and uh, there was an American author by the name of John G. Fuller who went down to Brazil with a team of scientists from New York and uh, did a very, very, uh, wrote a fascinating book called Arigo's Surgeon of the Rusty Knife, that is a fascinating read. Uh, you know, the, the, the way the story goes, tens of thousands of people were operated on by this guy. A wide swath of society in, in South America 
went to him. And, you know, this is a, a situation where it, it's very hard for the skeptics to completely discredit him because John G. Fuller has a whole book with photographs. With, In fact, if I remember correctly, Fuller had a, a tumor in his hand, in his wrist, that Arigo removed for him. So this yeah. wasn't the typical type of psychic surgery. What have, what have you heard about Arigo, and why isn't he on your site? Well, the site is a work in progress, so um, I'm certainly considering, along with uh, a few other people, put, putting him on. I have heard, I've certainly heard about this, and uh, I am interested to find out more about him. Um, it, it's kind of, he, it seems to me as if he had some power over the mind of uh, his patients, and he just persuaded them, not perhaps through hypnosis, but not to accept the idea of pain at all. So he obviously had some power over their mind. Mm. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney you never know what's going to happen next Hey, let me remind our listeners, if you want to contact us here at the Paracast, send your message to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. When you visit theparacast.com, you can download recent episodes of the show here, the current episode, and even participate in our wild and woolly and fabulous message boards at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Brian Houghton. He is the webmaster of MysteriousPeople.com. That's MysteriousPeople.com. And he's got a book coming out in a few months called Hidden History, Lost Civilizations, Ancient, rather Secret Knowledge, and Ancient Mysteries. Brian, before we go on with some of your mysterious people, can you briefly tell us something about the background of this book? Yeah, well, the book basically is uh, divided up into uh, three sections, mysterious places, uh, unexplained artifacts, and enigmatic people and it, it's basically uh, about a collection of let's say archaeological ancient history uh, mysteries and what I tried to do in the book uh, which I don't think many books do is to bring together um, what's known now as alternative history kind of artifacts so I think one example is the Koso artifact where it's supposedly um, an ancient uh, mechanism encrusted in half a million year old rock uh, and with, with normal archaeological mysteries like Stonehenge, the pyramids, and 
you know, trying trying to uh, see if there is actual evidence for some of these alternative theories, uh, and see if they'll stand up against the more uh, the more known objects like the Machu Picchu stuff like that. So they don't normally stand up, I have to say. One thing that was up and discussed many years ago in the UFO field was this thing called the Nazca Lines in Peru. Yeah. That yeah. supposedly you only see them, and this is a subject we haven't really discussed on the Paracast no. yet, but you can only see the actual design when you're on a hill or airborne. And, of course, the theory in the UFO field many years ago, and hasn't been brought up lately, is that this may have been left there by ancient astronauts. What's your take on this? Well, I don't think so. First of all, I think it, they were proposed, was it Von Däniken who said they were ancient runways or something like that? Right. The latest of many, yes. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't have thought that uh, such advanced craft would have needed runways so long for a start. And uh, I think um, one of the researchers out uh, uh, on these lines said the, ground, the Earth is so soft there that anything heavy would just sink into the ground if it landed there. And thirdly, you know, we know who created them when they, cre- when they were created. And uh, I think experimental archaeologists have even been able to recreate some of the more complex figure, figures in uh, three or four weeks. It's not something you need to be from outer space to be able to do. So I think that it's not a prosaic explanation, but it, it's not an outer space explanation either. Well, looking at the entire archaeological situation, and you pointed out that you and... Other archaeologists don't necessarily see eye to eye because they're very much involved in traditional explanations. But are there genuine mysteries through the centuries showing previous advanced civilizations or maybe even the visitation by ancient astronauts that we can find or talk about? Uh, I'm not aware of any evidence for the visitations of ancient astronauts. I think what is fascinating is the way that uh, the level of technology of the ancients is always uh, underestimated uh, by archaeologists and each new discovery seems to push back the invention of various things further and further. I mean we have for example the the Baghdad battery which is a working battery from 2000 years ago um, is one example and we have also um, the first planetarium which is uh, from ancient Greece which is found beneath the sea 2000 years ago. So I think the main thing is that we, we're we not as advanced and modern as we think, and this is also a tiny fraction remains of what once existed all this time ago. So I think, yes, it's the technology that the ancient had, ancients had, really, that's impressive. So you don't have to assume that there was any involvement with extraterrestrials then? I think that you don't have to assume it. The first thing to assume, I think it's natural to assume, that it was the the, the local populations who made these things. If uh, that's the that's the first explanation, a theory like extraterrestrial extraterrestrial um, intervention, it's an extraordinary theory and it needs extraordinary evidence, and I don't see any. Mm. Brian, you mentioned the Baghdad battery. Could you tell us yeah. a little bit more about that? Because I think everybody assumes that electricity is a relatively contemporary invention. What's the deal with the Baghdad battery? Well, basically, it was it's a strange. It was two um, cells, and they, they think it was powered. Actually, it's quite incredible. It was powered by grape juice. And apparently, they used it to apply a very thin um, film of coating to uh, ancient statues. Almost so like electroplating? Yeah, exactly. 
This is a theory at the moment. Is so apparently two thousand year old electroplating device. Has anybody attempted to recreate this with contemporary materials to see if indeed this is what it was? They have they have um, done some experiments with it, and they have managed to electroplate um, a few objects. But what they've found is that the power generated by two of the batteries is just not enough. I think they need they need about ten connected together to do even a tiny amount of electroplating, which does cast a bit of a shadow of a doubt over it. But hmm. the current theory is that's what it was used for. I, I had not heard of this before. Fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now you did start getting involved in the field of the paranormal, reading about UFOs. So have you reached any conclusions about that? Because, again, you seem to feel, at least in terms of ancient mysteries, that they are Earth-born mysteries, not mysteries from out there. So what about UFOs in general? I think there are probably hundreds of explanations for UFOs. Well, I am attracted to the um, theory of alternative dimensions and, uh, and mm. perhaps UFOs being some kind of environmental phenomenon. This this does attract me. Well, I wouldn't say it's impossible that UFOs are extraterrestrial vehicles, but to me they have a connection with uh, with poltergeists, with ghosts, and I would connect them with this because so so many UFO sightings are also um, just one part of a mystery that may involve strange creatures, poltergeist phenomena, stuff like this. So I'm inclined to think it's some kind of alternative reality, reality, another dimension, something like this. This is actually a topic that's come up on the Paracast quite a bit, Brian, and yeah. I like to think Gene and I are actually fairly open to this idea. We, we've talked about this with a variety of our guests. The more traditionally steeped scientists tend to have problems with this. Uh, our friend Stanton Friedman when asked about the notion of these creatures, these entities, being paradimensional, you know, interdimensional in origin, he, he sort of dismisses it, where yeah. another guest of ours, a friend of mine, Jeff Ritzman, who's had a variety of paranormal ex experiences personally, he thinks that there is a lot of uh, potential weight behind this, uh, this theory. Why do you feel that this is a good explanation? Well, I think that if for example, there were extraterrestrial vehicles, there'd be some evidence by now, there'd be better evidence by now. I mean, you talked before about photographs of poltergeist activity. I, have never, I don't think I've ever seen a convincing UFO photograph. <laughs> In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, got a comment or a question? Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. News at theparacast.com. Visit our website at theparacast.com. And we have links to our message boards, links to previous episodes, etc., etc. Today we're talking to Brian Houghton. He's 
author of the forthcoming book, Hidden History, Lost Civilizations, Secret Knowledge and Ancient Mysteries. And we're also talking about his website, which is webmastermysteriouspeople.com, where you learn about people with strange abilities, strange histories, etc. And you began to talk about UFO photos, and we have problems with them, too. Go on. Well, I think my main problem is uh, most books of, about UFOs now and magazine, they do kind of put photos on the front that are obviously fake. And you'd think that uh, by now, um, books being published now, we'll be able to publish a photo that's at least a bit convincing on the front cover. But we keep seeing the same um, Adamski um, vehicles on the front that have been proved false many times. I think by now there'd be a photo, at least, but there doesn't seem to be. I've never seen a, uh, a convincing one. Actually... So, I mean, that doesn't mean they don't exist, but there'd be some physical evidence, I think, if, if they were extraterrestrial vehicles. Actually, Brian, I think there, there have been a few photographs that I find compelling. There's actually one gentleman in particular whose name is evading me at this exact moment, but I will post a link on our website um, to this fellow and his set of five photographs. There was a an article in UFO magazine recently about him, and uh, a lot of people think that his photos are some of the most compelling ones, though I would tend to agree with you that at this point, it's really hard, I think, to accept photographic evidence really of any sort as a definitive proof of anything. In the realm of computer graphics and in the age of Photoshop, uh, it's so easy to fabricate and create fake images from scratch that uh, it'd be very hard. I think I'd be hard-pressed to believe any photo. And really, at this point, that can be said about video as well. There was a, a recent project done in Australia where this fellow had commissioned a set of animations, a whole series of very ultra-convincing animations of UFOs that were supposedly real footage. And some of these things look incredibly realistic. And it turns out that, indeed, the whole thing was a quote-unquote art project and that none of these things were real. I mean, they were basically all completely computer-rendered, and they looked incredibly convincing. So at this point, yeah, I mean, video footage, photographic footage, these things that are, are highly questionable, really, unfortunately, the only real thing is actual experience. But uh, there's no way to convey that to anyone else. This is sort of this dead-end brick wall that the UFO community has hit, where it's, it's almost impossible outside of physical evidence. And there have been a few physical pieces. We had a guest on the show uh, this, uh, this spring who had a fascinating artifact that really defies analysis, defies description, something he claims fell from a UFO, this very odd piece of metal. That was Bob uh, White. Bob White, right. his, uh, his weird artifact. So, you know, outside of physical evidence, it really is impossible to point at a, to a photo and say, this is real. It's really easy, as you, as you state, Brian, to point to a photo and say, this is obviously fake. Yeah, I think this is the same thing with ghosts. I, I don't think I've really ever seen a convincing photograph of a ghost either. So uh, it's obviously something that affects all paranormal phenomena. The, the, the evidence seems to be anecdotal, really. Now, do you ever think, and this is the ultimate conspiracy theory, that the forces behind those apparitions, be they UFOs, ghosts, any of these events, they don't want us to have that evidence, so they avoid it in their own way, shall we say. 
It's possible, yeah. Certainly seems to be the case with a lot of poltergeist activity with all the um, recording devices going wrong, cam cameras malfunctioning, things happening just beyond the uh, the room where the uh, cameras are set up uh, or when they're turned off. Uh, I think possibly it's, it would in indicate that uh, there's some intelligence behind the phenomenon. So that would be a bit depressing because it would mean we'll never have any uh, solid evidence though, unless the phenomenon wants us to. Well, there was a comment by the late Ray Palmer, who of course was one of the forces behind the Shaver mystery about people in the, uh -huh. in the center of the earth and all that stuff, and the caverns involving Richard Shaver. Palmer said at one time, flying saucers are here to make us think. What does he mean by that? Well, maybe to expand our horizons. So we viewed flying saucers in more spiritual ways back in the 19th and early 20th century. But now in terms of hardware and maybe as we expand our horizons, we'll get closer to their reality if there is an external reality. That gets even more mysterious. <laughs> I mean, that's possible. Um, I mean, you have these reports at the end of the 19th century of mysterious airships, um, right. which, which are kind of, what are they, 10, 20, 30 years ahead of, ahead of the uh, technology of the time. And in the 50s, they're sources. They still seem to be sources, though, don't they? So uh, the technology hasn't evolved. If there's alien technology, it doesn't seem to have uh, evolved from 50 years ago. Well, they're not like Detroit or, or Japan where they have the 2,917 version of the flying saucer and the 2,918 so the space people can say, you know what, for another 2,000 credits you can get next year's model, you know, next with all model. the extra stuff, no. the super fast warp drive and interdimensional craft and all that. <laughs> but well, wait a minute, I mean, if you look at the classical disk shape that's reported, there have actually been... And let's discount all the silly uh, reports and all the what are obviously not real uh, encounters. There have been, you know, the small percentage of encounters that are truly unexplained. We still see a fairly wide range of little details that are different about the disks, but the disks have remained fairly consistent. Now, as far as airships go, like from the, uh, from the late 19th century and early 20th century, one thing that does seem fairly consistent is sort of the cigar shape and yeah, sort of archetype. Yeah. I mean, that, that really, those two things haven't changed, but I mean, the fact of the matter is if you look at cars, you know, cars have always had four wheels for the most part. You've always had, you know, not always, but typically have a front-mounted engine with certain exceptions. Uh, you know, they've always had a steering wheel, so certain things tend to remain the same because those are, you know, sort of design points that are essential, they're elemental, they're primary. They don't yeah. really change, right? Yeah. Well, passenger jets haven't changed for 40 years, have they? No. Some of those passenger jets are 40 years old. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 
2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. Hey, let me tell everybody that if you want to contact us here at the Paracast, send your letters to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. Visit our website at thepowercast.com, and you can check out past episodes of the show and visit our wild, woolly, and fabulous message boards. This week, we're talking to Brian Houghton. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Hidden History, Lost Civilization, Secret Knowledge, and Ancient Mysteries, and also the webmaster of mysteriouspeople.com. And one thing about his book, he's pointing out that there may indeed have been ancient civilizations as highly advanced as us or more so that have vanished over the years. And this is unlike some of the people who are fundamentalists who believe that the Earth is only 4,000 or 6,000 years old. And we've had letters from people like that. But what about Atlantis? Do you think there was an Atlantis? That's a big question. It depends whether whether people are referring to some kind of spiritual home or an actually a huge continent. Geologists are now saying that it's impossible for a continent to disappear under the ocean. It just couldn't happen. So if you listen to the geologists, it couldn't, you know, it couldn't have been a continent as described by Plato. I think there may be something to the story. I think there may um, there may have been a, a civilization that was lost. In, well, Plato says out in the Mid-Atlantic, um, which is, uh, would be the Azores now, somewhere around there. Uh, I think if, if it's anywhere, it's there. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced the whole continent so advanced ever existed, to be honest, especially not 10,000 years ago. What about the stuff that you mentioned in your book about all these ancient mysteries and the ability, for example, to have had batteries so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago? Do you think there might have been any civilization that reached that pinnacle, even if it wasn't on a remote island or a continent that sunk? I mean, uh, I think it's mainly there seem to be isolated cases um, spread around the world. And for example, in Ireland at Newgrange, they had two stroke observatory, uh, five and a half thousand years old, and they'd set up the entrance to. Um, to show the sun's rays at midwinter so the whole for about 10 minutes on midwinter december 21st december 22nd the whole chamber would be illuminated at that specific point uh, but after after this went out of use they never reached that kind of level again so isolated pockets of genius if you will occur but they don't they never seem to follow through if you see what i mean well one thing i wonder is if something happened to destroy our civilization and there you can count the ways count the potentials out there but say our civilization is destroyed 10,000 years from now 50,000 years from now other civilizations arise on this planet would they find remnants of us <laughs> everything they find plastic. Um, plastic they'd find every stupid plastic toy the McDonald's ever made would still be here I mean every survive well, we think that there's a good likelihood plastic does survive. I mean, there's a good yeah. chance that this is a large part of what they would find. And 
And honestly, gentlemen, to judge us based on the things we've molded out of plastic wouldn't paint a very pretty picture of us. No. I mean, the technology would disappear, wouldn't it? There'd be nothing much left of uh, computers in uh, even a few hundred years. So technology can be totally lost without doubt. Whether a whole civilization on a continent can be totally lost, that's another thing. But certainly, I'm sure that in the next uh, five, ten years more, examples of ancient technology will be discovered and we'll be left wondering again i mean how did they create it but you know i I think there's more rather than less to be discovered still as far as ancient technology is concerned i'll tell you something i sometimes think that if i had a working time machine and a really good interpreter the, the place where i would go back to and and this is so sad and so many people don't really know about this but the royal library of alexandria in egypt yeah yeah which was the world's repository for pretty much all of human knowledge through hundreds, maybe thousands of years. I mean, this was a library that contained essentially the the treasure trove of all ancient knowledge, and it was destroyed. There's nothing left of it. Um, What was lost in that destruction? What ancient wisdom that things that to this day we still perhaps... In our scientific culture, in our in our emphasis on scientific understanding, there are huge gaps at this point. And I, and I wonder what was lost with the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. Well, certainly uh, hundreds of thousands of scrolls, Greek translated. It wasn't just Greek literature. It was um, Persian, Indian, uh, all sorts of literature. And um, whether I don't think there was ever one major catastrophe, um, and I point this out in my book, that destroyed the library. I think over time, and Alexandria uh, was a volatile place. There, there were many battles in the centre of uh, the city, and I think it just took its toll over hundreds of years. Things were lost, and part of the library was burnt down, and um, obviously parchments were stolen. I mean, I still hope somewhere in the desert there's a huge cache of uh, parchments still to be discovered. It's certainly possible. What, what would we find? What understanding did the ancients have that, uh, that to this day perhaps are things that we could still learn? I wonder about that sometimes. Yeah, well, we might find the uh, theory behind stuff like the Baghdad battery and the various other technology because we don't really have the literature to back up the artifacts we find. Um, Baghdad battery is one example, but there are others. So we might find that, and we might find details of other technology that we haven't found architectural evidence of, and obviously great works of literature that have been lost as well. You also wonder whether there might be inventions that exceeded what we have today, but they've been lost in the ravages of time through global disasters, crashing meteorites, whatever. I'm I'm certain. I'm certain there was records of all sorts of things, especially inventions. But like I said, I'm sure some of uh, these inventions or the remains of them uh, lie at the bottom of the Mediterranean somewhere, some of them. I mean, uh, the uh, Antikythera mechanism, as it's called, uh, was found at the bottom of uh, the Mediterranean in the beginning of the 20th century. And what is that, just to explain to our listeners? This is a mechanism composed of, uh, I think, 40 or 50 separate gears that it's a kind of astronomical clock, uh, certainly the first working clock. And it was 
um, brought to the surface by Greek sponge divers beginning of the 20th century. And apparently there, was, there is nothing comparable until uh, medieval Europe, and this, is, this was 2,000 years old. So it's really the first astronomical clock. They don't know what it was used for. I mean, it could have been anything from predicting horoscopes to um, kind of a, a miniature planetarium, but uh, it's, it's certainly an amazing device. Are we doing what's necessary to find out What's lost there? Are archaeologists doing the right thing? Do they have to do a lot of deep-sea diving or what? Uh, unfortunately, I think it's just down to money. Archaeology is never the best finance science. And um, without a reason, unless there's a known wreck gone down and somebody, some millionaire somewhere, finances the expedition, there's just not the money to send archaeologists down with the best equipment to find this stuff. So really, really, you know, the archaeology, the universities, the institutions haven't got the money without a very good reason to send uh, expeditions down. And private industry doesn't give a damn unless they could see a profit. In it. I think so, yeah. Unless you have a millionaire that uh, has a particular interest to them. These guys seem to have disappeared at the end of the 19th century, uh, the kind of millionaire who would pay for his own excavations, kind of. Like a Paul Allen today. We can get Paul Allen to do it. We can call him up. I was actually just thinking of Richard Branson. He might be a better uh, well, better choice at this point. Yes, yeah. I don't know if he's ever been approached, but he'd certainly be a good choice. He, he's a creative guy and has some eccentric ideas, which is uh, good ingredients for archaeology, I think. I'll tell you something, Brian. Your ideas are not eccentric, very realistic approach to all this stuff. Nothing pie in the sky, and certainly your views about UFOs and where it may stand in relationship to other crazy mysteries of the present and past is something that's been really fascinating, and this has been a fascinating visit. Brian Houghton, the author of the forthcoming book, Hidden History, Lost Civilization, Secret Knowledge, and Ancient Mysteries, and it covers a lot of the stuff that we've talked about on this episode of the Paracast. That book is, according to what they say in Amazon, you never know with books, of course, that it's expected to be out early in 2007, but you can go to Amazon and find out. Also, you want to visit this fascinating website, of which Brian is webmaster, which is called MysteriousPeople.com. That's MysteriousPeople.com. You learn about people with mysterious powers, mysterious knowledge, uh, a lot of other stuff. Some of it may be real, some of it may not be, but all of these people are interesting reading, and you were a very fascinating guest. Thank you again, Brian Houghton, for joining us Thanks. on the Paracast, and we hope to have you on again. Thanks. Great talking to you. Nice to uh, speak to you again. Thank you, Brian. Thanks. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Coming up next on the PowerCast, we're going to hear from UFO Magazine publisher William Burns. We're going to talk about Long John Nebble, Candy Jones, and government secrecy. Coming next. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by 
gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in a grand science fiction tradition. So, Bill, it seems that in the uh, UFO field, as it were, people are very either very serious or extremely serious. There's not a lot of uh, light-hearted talk about this topic. It seems that, for example, science fiction people and UFO people just can't seem to see eye to eye. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that you're right on that. We've been bounced off this, I think, maybe four times. We tried to write a science fiction section, I think, maybe five issues ago, uh, with a wonderful piece called The 1800s Club by our art director at UFO Magazine, Bob McCauley. Hmm. And it's a great story. Nobody liked it. Um, it's not because they didn't like the story. It's because the reaction was that nobody wanted science fiction in UFO magazine, period. They didn't want to consider science fiction. Before that, we were contemplating having a science fiction contest with one of the major studios. The major studio wanted us to invite science fiction writers into the magazine, and the best stories uh, would uh, turn out to be uh, either comic books or motion pictures. Nobody wanted us to do that, and we had to back away from that. We had a UFO photo contest. Nobody wanted that. They wanted no contest, no games, no fiction. I think that to be politically correct in uh, UFO studies and ufology, you really have to be fiction-free. It's not as though that UFO people are humorless people, because they're not. Because UFOs themselves are such a politically sensitive subject. Steve Bassett, who ran the Disclosure Conference in Washington for a few years back, Steve Bassett has often called uh, UFO studies a ghetto and said that once you have the UFO taint on you, you, you become ghettoized. Nobody will then take you seriously. Well, because of that, and because people who walk around screaming UFOs, UFOs, or even walk around whispering UFOs, UFOs, are somehow considered crazy, off the beaten path, they're threatening, it's kind of like you're a leper, and then to mix fiction with that is kind of to give credence to what the rest of the world says about UFOs, which is that all these people are crazy, they're jokes, and they're hoaxes. Meanwhile, the people who are fiction people, they want to keep their fiction separate. Fiction is art. And for you, and art means that you take a frame around something and you separate that thing from the rest of the world. That's what makes it art, kind of like Andy Warhol, right? Andy Warhol took a Campbell's soup can. And what's artistic about a Campbell's soup can? Well, what was artistic maybe wasn't the Campbell's soup can. It was the frame that Warhol put around the Campbell's soup can. The context, that yeah. identified that as art. That's how science fiction people see their fiction. It's not real. And don't call us real. We're fiction. And don't get involved with UFOs. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're talking to Bill Burns, publisher of UFO Magazine. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about in the next 45, 50 minutes or so. So stay with us. And, of course, the UFO people sometimes get even sensitive about things we say on this show, for example. We'll say something that might even be a minor criticism of something. And they'll go right after us. Yeah. But we don't care. <laughs> well, uh, one thing happened. I was um, on the radio the other night, 
And I, I, I used the phrase for a geographical location, Midwest. And I got a, an email, a, a friendly person, it turned out, at the, after the email exchange, there is no such place as the Midwest. Look on a map. There's no Midwest. <laughs> There's a geographical location. It's central United States, but no, and it's hammering, hammering. So, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm not a map person. I'm not a, geogra a geography person. I'm not going to get into an argument with somebody about the Midwest. I mean, I can say, look, in common parlance, if you're from Chicago, from Ohio, from Indiana, from Illinois, from et cetera, et cetera, you're from the Midwest. And there's a standard set of Midwestern values. But I didn't want to get into a fight. What I did say, though, which seemed to kind of mollify the fire, uh, put some, uh, tamp it down, was, you know, back in the uh, 20th century, back in in the early part of the 20th century, there was, uh, there was a group, it's still in existence today, doing a linguistic atlas of American English, very important. Mm. And uh, in this linguistic atlas of American English, and I, I was a linguist when I was a teacher, in this uh, linguistic atlas, there was a dialect area of the United States called Midwest. It was a standard Midwestern dialect, and that Midwestern dialect, free of New Yorkisms, free of Southernisms, free of Great Lakeisms from Chicago, and you know, we all know what a Chicago accent sounds like, and uh, what a Minnesota accent sounds like, so free of all those regionalisms, that dialect that Midwestern dialect, which became from from the 19th century uh, a Southwestern dialect, you hear that in California, that dialect is considered received standard American English. And when you turn on television or listen to the radio, uh, you will hear people, as I'm trying to do now, suppress their regional dialect and speak more like uh, a Midwestern, a person from the Midwest speaking anywhere beyond uh, ninth grade English. So that seemed to model. Well, I want to get back for a moment to this idea of science fiction and UFOlogy not overlapping, because recently I was reading this really excellent article with uh, Whitley Strieber in your wonderful magazine. What do you have to say the name of? UFO Magazine. That's right. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> UFO Magazine. UFO Magazine. Well, but here's the thing. I was reading about Strieber's new book that's coming out, The Greys, and in the interview, he talks about how he does indeed fall back on science fiction mechanisms of storytelling and some actual, I guess, fiction to sort of frame this story that he tells about these creatures he claims to have had many encounters with. Now, he's well known in the science fiction and horror field. Has this affected his credibility? He claims to have these authentic stories in the realm of UFOs and extraterrestrial encounters. Has this cost him a huge amount of credibility with the UFO field? Yes. In 1983 or 84, when Communion came out, mm -hmm. Communion came out as a true story. It was not a novel. And previously, Whitley had written a whole series of novels, The Hunger, Wolfen, I think he wrote Wolfen, right. I'm not sure. That's right. And uh, Whitley was well, well known as a, as a science fiction horror writer. And on the cover of Communion, it said, Communion, a true story. Well, everybody in, in general readership took this as kind of like um, Blair Witch, right? A pre-Blair Witch, Blair Witch. You call right. something true, but it's really a novel, so it, it's merging genres. And Whitley came under a lot of criticism, criticism that continues to this day. I mean, we still talk about this, about the fact that people, and this is one of the things he says, people cannot make the separation between when a writer says something is fiction 
and when a writer says something is nonfiction, Communion was the beginning of, I think, a series of three nonfiction books on UFOs. And Whitley has had some incredible experiences, not just the experiences in the cabin with abductions, but experiences in doing research into the entire cover-up on UFOs. I mean, he talks about the CIA cover-up, talks about the various involvements that the United States government has and indeed world governments have with uh, UFOs and extraterrestrials, and people criticize him heavily. So what Whitley did in, in the graves, and I, you know, I'll offer a shameless plug here, uh, Whitley kindly gave George Norrie and me a cover quote for our book out this week called Worker in the Light, say, at the same publisher Whitley is, and uh, I gave Whitley a cover quote for the Grays, so just to know that, you know, for the sake of disclosure here, but Whitley often had complained about the fact that people couldn't make the distinction between a writer separating fiction from nonfiction, that somehow one polluted the other, that Whitley's fiction had polluted communion, and now Whitley's nonfiction, well, uh, you couldn't take his nonfiction seriously because he was writing a book called The Grays, which was a fiction about UFOs. Well, I mean, you could just see from that perspective that people are so nervous about UFOs, especially ufologists. They're very, very defensive and very nervous. They've got this weak point. Somehow people will think they're nuts. Well, Whitley is a straight-up guy. He's really solid and grounded. He is one of America's best horror writers as a fiction writer, and he had UFO experiences. I'm also good friends with the producer and director of the movie Communion. Remember the movie that came out with Christopher Walken? Oh, yeah. Right. Well, his name is Philippe Mora. He and I are good friends. We've worked together. In fact, I was in one of his features about five years ago called Occam's Razor. I had a featured role in his movie. And Philippe was a witness up in upstate New York to what happened with Whitley. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't write about it. He doesn't want to become a UFO nut. He doesn't want to be characterized that way. But he told me that um, he was there on one of the nights and he saw the lights and the experiences, and uh, Ann had said, don't wake the kids and tell the kids about this. So um, he was a witness. Wait a minute. So he, saw, he, he saw these beings? He didn't see the actual beings. He saw kind of the pre-appearance of these beings. That's in this latest issue of UFO magazine, and a couple of issues before, uh, Philly does tell his own story about this. I think in, uh, he told it to uh, George Norrie, and George put that in his column on this issue of UFO Magazine. So for folks who want to get that, uh, you can get that from www.ufomag.com. You can get it, and you could read that little small piece about how the director of communion was actually a witness to what Whitley was talking about. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, Send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me pause. Tell everybody you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're proud to be presenting. Well, we've had so many doctors on the show, and we never refer to Bill Burns as Dr. Bill Burns, but he really is. He's been a Ph.D. for a number of years. He's the publisher of UFO Magazine. And we're talking about 
the attitudes in the UFO field. We've got another big subject to get into in a few moments. And this is so unfortunate that people have become so touchy about criticisms. And I'll give you one example. A couple of weeks ago on the show, David mentioned after we interviewed an author, and it was a pleasant session. In fact, I think we got along quite well with him. And David remarked about technical deficiencies of the book. He felt that the book was not well edited, stuff like that. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean the contents are wrong. The problem is when you deal with self-published books, you sometimes don't have the budget to hire professional editors. So David made a few comments. A firestorm ensued among some members of the UFO community. A few referred to David and I as trying to be like Robin Quiver's and Howard Stern, I haven't decided which one of us plays which role. Oh, I don't care. I'll be the black woman. Meanwhile, with the kind of money they make, we should be so lucky. But the thing yeah, is... I, 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 you get the satellite radio gig, <laughs> and look, when you have Pam Anderson on, uh, do the video. I'll do the video. Oh, God, she's a bimbo. Um, I suppose I'll get an email about that, too. But the thing is that, for example, I'm just in the middle of reading... Stanton Friedman's book, Crash at Corona. I know about this subject matter. I'm actually in the middle of rereading, Bill, your rather incredible book with uh, Philip Corso, The Day After Roswell. Um, I've recently dug that out of my collection and started rereading that again. And I have to say, it lends so much credibility to the topic matter to have real writers who actually employ real editors to create smooth, polished works that don't detract from any of the content matter, but simply present it in a way where one can absorb it. Reading a book should be a pleasurable experience. It shouldn't feel like you're, you're wading upstream. But I will be blunt that a writer who has not worked with a professional editor does not know what publishing is, period. Yeah. yeah. I would completely and absolutely agree with that, Bill. And Gene and I are both widely published. I've written a handful of books and have written hundreds of articles over the years in technology. And one of the things that my my readers always tell me is they can always identify my work because it reads smoothly and it it doesn't feel stunted. It doesn't feel you know awkward. And that's something that. Just because you can write, it doesn't mean you can read. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but so many writers don't understand that when you write something, the best thing to do after you're done writing it is to go away from it for a few days and then come back and read it out loud. See what it sounds like if it was something that you were exposing to the world that was outside of your head. And that's when you really start to see what your writing style is. And this particular book I was criticizing, there are some issues with the content as well, but for the most part, the way it's written makes it really painful to get through. And, and again, it detracts from the credibility of the actual content. And that's the sad thing. That's right. Look, most writers don't know. Um, and I'm not talking about professional writers who've been through the process, because it really is a process. And mm-hmm. once you go through the process of being professionally published, which means there's a team supporting your manuscript, once you are through that process, I can tell you right now, you are forever changed as a writer. One thing most writers who have not been professionally published, and even some who have been don't know is that just for example when a really good proofreader reads um, for uh, for errors I know because you go through this at UFO magazine and we do it rushed and I'd love to have another proofreader and we can't afford one but they read it backwards I mean they actually start reading from the end and read forward because they don't want the continuity of the text to lull them into putting 
correct punctuation and putting correct spellings into places where the text itself doesn't have it. And yeah. that's a trick. And I am probably the world's worst proofreader and don't claim to be, but I just know from having worked at where I cut my, the remaining teeth I have, but where I cut those <laughs> was at a professional book packaging company all the way back in, in uh, years and years ago in, in Princeton, New Jersey when I was teaching. They were, because we produced books in many cases for organizations as well as for publishers who were actually going to publish the books for those organizations. We had professional proofreaders sitting there, and I learned some of their skills and learned why I couldn't do it. Got a mental block, but I just learned some of their skills. And when you watch it, you know what really professional editors do. My wife Nancy's a professional editor, and um, I couldn't, you know, she's a professional line editor and a developmental editor, and I couldn't do in a million years what she does in turning around a piece of text um, and bringing material out that's in the text without changing the writer's voice. You need somebody else to do it. You can't do it with your own work no matter how good you are. Some third party with the proper qualifications has to look at your material and give you an honest impression about what's going on because you'll never see it. You'll gloss over the mistakes. That's right. And there are a lot of writers, but there are a lot of writers who will be very upset that people criticize their, the editing of their mm -hmm. work. And my standard answer, because they get this all the time in the magazine, and my standard answer when, uh, when somebody, and for filament books, we can talk about that too, filament books, um, I say, listen, writers aren't editors, and editors aren't writers. And if you wanted to be an editor, take somebody else's material and edit it. That's not yours. If you want to be a writer, let somebody else edit yours, because you can't do both. Mm -hmm. That's why self-published books don't, as a rule, work. Now, I should tell you that a number of the companies that do self-published books now offer editorial services. I can't tell you how good they are. Sometimes they are freelancers who do have real experience, but at least something is better than nothing. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're talking to Bill Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine. This year, celebrating its 20th anniversary. Go to ufomag.com. In fact, I got this great issue right now, the new one that just came out with a montage of faces of the people who have been part of the magazine over the years. We'll get into that in a moment. Bill, back in the early uh, days. Wait, wait, wait a minute. That's his doctor, Bill. Gene. You is the doctor, Bill. You must refer to him properly. Who let that guy in? I don't know. I, I don't know. I thought it was Dwight Schultz for a second. Don't make fun of my last name. Schultz, this was... Uh, oh, anyway, I'm sorry. 
Go right ahead, Gene. <laughs> Way back in the early days, before there was a Gene Steinberg and a David Bietney or an Art Bell or a George Norrie or Jerry Pippen and all the people who have been involved in paranormal radio, somebody was around who pioneered the format, who brought on all the greats in the paranormal field, UFOs, ghost investigations, everything. His name was Long John Nebel. Bill, tell us about Long John. Well, Long John Nebel really invented the field, and we're going back to the 1950s and the 1960s. I mean, radio, as we know, uh, has been probably one of the most potent, I mean, I can wax poetic, radio has been one of the most potent political forces in the 20th century. Uh, we all know that it was radio in the 1920s and the 1930s that brought about the um, fascist regimes, talk radio, that brought about the fascist regimes in Italy and in Germany. It, it really showed the raw power. It was radio that got America through the Depression. It was uh, the brilliance of Franklin Delano Roosevelt who used the medium to get on and talk to people in their very homes with the fireside chats. Why, 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 why? Politicians today can't do that or don't recognize that is beyond me. It was radio in the 1930s that Frank Stanton, who, who was to become the president of CBS, uh, Frank Stanton, when he was at Princeton, working with uh, kind of like a mass media marketing group, research group, funded by the Rockefellers, by the way, at Princeton, sponsored Mercury Theater of the Air, and then after Mercury Theater aired its War of the Worlds, they then planted stories in the print media that there was panic in the streets when there really wasn't any panic in the streets for the most part, um, and so created the panic that was the panic of the War of the Worlds. That's the power of radio. Into that mix, in the 1950s, uh, Long John Neville, who had a wonderful radio voice, one of the great radio voices of all time, uh, Long John Neville began a nighttime show in which he went to the other side. Now, Long John didn't believe in this. And I think that it's very important to make this point clear, that Long John was not a ufologist. He was not a UFO believer. In fact, if anything, he was a debunker and a skeptic because Long John could see that a lot of the people in the field, he believed, the Georgia Damskys, the, all the great figures uh, claiming that they had been in contact with um, extraterrestrial beings and they were landings in the desert and they'd been taken to Venus and they met uh, the wonderful, gorgeous, red-headed Captain Xenia uh, from the alien spacecraft. They were either flakes or hoaxes. And he realized that. He saw that. And just as we see some of them today, he didn't expose them on the air because he knew that they made great, great radio. So he invited them on his show. And night after night through the night, you'd listen to some of the greatest stories and the greatest tales. Some of them, by the way, were probably true from the paranormal. He, we, he talked about ghosts and ghost hunting and these ghostly hauntings that took place in these strange places. He talked about UFO landings and abductions and talked about people who'd come back from the dead. And if, if you couldn't sleep at night or if you just um, wanted to listen to this guy and were able to stagger through work the next day, Long John was your friend. And, of course, for all the truck drivers out there, plied the, there were no interstates back then, but who plied the roads by night, police officers, firefighters, all-night nurses in emergency rooms, Long John became a friend and really invented paranormal 
talk radio that later became picked up by Art and George and you and everybody else. But it was Long John that invented the field. Now, Long John was not above putting on his audience. And there was a situation there where Gray Barker, one of the early writers about the men in black, wrote the book they knew too much about flying saucers. And, yeah, and John makes the comment, well, nobody has tried to shut us up or something of that nature. And then music plays from the control room. Oh, sure. I mean, remember also that you're talking about a time, you couldn't get away with that today. You are talking about a time when that act, which is politically incorrect, he is really having fun, but his audience got it. Those who want to believe it, there are people today who I've met who still say that the story that that was a fake wasn't true, that was a cover-up for the fact that it was true. Oh, people are so confused. <laughs> you, you start to think that if the truth about UFOs were put right out in front of people, that ultimately either people wouldn't notice or they would simply say, that's a bunch of hooey, and just move on. You could have... David Biedney, you have just, in one sentence, defined the entire... Not only have you defined the entire UFO cover-up, I could go into a whole serial killer riff right now on why you've defined that as well, but you've just put your finger on it. That is exactly what is going on. Why bother to cover up UFOs? You don't have to cover up UFOs, David, because if you just say the word UFOs, since so many people are afraid of believing in UFOs, even though they do, we all know the statistics that over half of Americans believe we've been visited by UFOs, that there are UFOs, and that our government is dealing with extraterrestrials. Over half the people in this country believe that, but here's a case where they don't want to admit that, so you've just explained why, even were a UFO to be on the front page of of the New York Times, people would read it, say, oh, wow, and dismiss it. And am I just blowing smoke on this? No, because no. that's exactly what happened in 1952 when UFOs were flying mm -hmm. over Washington. Not mm -hmm. only was this covered in the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the major newspapers, but it was also covered in the old movie tone newsreels, remember, with the voice of Ed Hurley, he narrating oh, sure. this? The whole country saw this. And then all the Air Force had to do was say, this, well, this was an anomaly. This was a little anomaly. So what you saw on the screen then became, why would you believe your lying eyes when I'm telling you the truth? Who would you rather believe? Somebody in a uniform telling you what you saw was not true? Or um, somebody telling you um, an explanation that was totally false? So, David, you've said it. Not only have you explained why why UFOs can land, and they do, and why people can see them, and they do, and the rest of the world doesn't believe it, you've also put your finger on why, in full view of thousands of people, the whole um, shoot-down of TWA Flight 800, they got away with that with a cover story, even though people saw the missile rising from the surface of the water to the plane and blowing it up. Well, it's the same way, Bill and Gene, that you talk about the political discussion in this country at this point in time. It's amazing to me that the word liberal, which is, you know, basically if you go to the etymology of that word, it means freedom. Freedom has been turned into an ugly word in this country at this point in our history. This is, this is something that I cannot get my brain around, how a word that has defined what this country was, the whole premise this country was founded on, it's like the eighth ugly word you can't say on broadcast media anymore, the word liberal. So basically when I look at all this, guys, I think we're screwed. <laughs> it's over. 
it's well, hard to remain optimistic in the, in in the face of the incredible lack of awareness and and not only the lack of awareness but the lack of intellectual curiosity you know bill reading the day after roswell again people have issues with corso all right fine but you know what if only five percent of this is genuine if only five percent of the information that stan presents in the crash of corona is genuine that's enough to tell me that there's something going on. Not just something going on, but something rather significant going on. What the hell is well, wrong well, with people? At, well, look at it from this way. If only one UFO story is true, the paradigm has changed. Just one. Right. You don't need right. 5%. You don't need 1%. You need one. If the story of Betty and Barney Hill is true, that means UFOs are real. Well, That's listen, simple. I'll make it even easier for you, Bill. At some point, I have to write for your magazine about one of my experiences in Venezuela, in Caracas in 1974, me, my brother, my mother, my father, and thousands of other people saw a cigar-shaped ship. We saw the thing hanging in the sky. It was early evening, so it was light out. It was a July evening. We saw the hatch under it open. We saw the three tiny disks come out and position themselves on three sides of this thing. And we saw the whole thing vanish right in front of our eyes. I don't have to believe a damn thing. And this, Bill, is something I tell people when I talk about this now, now that I do talk about it. I don't have to believe a damn thing. I was there. I know what I saw. I didn't sleep for two days after that. None of us slept for two days after that. That's all we talked about. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You know, our sponsors don't want to sleep. they got to have me say this thing here, okay? Okay. All right. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Bill Barron's publisher of UFO Magazine, celebrating its 20th anniversary. Go to ufomag.com to learn more. We're talking to Bill about a lot of things, about politically correct UFOs and UFO researchers, about the late long John Nebel. And I want to segue to this because this raises a whole interesting can of worms. We touched on it. In the first part of our program, we were talking to Brian Houghton, who is the proprietor of MysteriousPeople.com, and that is Candy Jones. Now, in was it the early 1970s, Long John gets married to this former model, Candy Jones. Right. This is important. This is after he'd established his long career back in the 50s and 60s as an all-night radio host talking about the paranormal. Then he meets and marries Candy Jones. That's right. So he's already done this stuff. He's had this show that was aired originally on WOR Radio in New York and then WNBC. One of my favorite stations. And, one of my favorite stations. Right. And the thing about these stations, and you don't have them in too many parts of the country, these are what they call clear channel stations, not in the sense of the network clear channel, but because they didn't have too many stations on those frequencies in other parts of the country, they were able to be heard through 20, 30 states at night. It was just fabulous. So you'd be on one station and have virtually a national radio show. So after establishing this, gaining this fame as this famous talk show host, he marries Candy Jones. She joins him on the show, but she has a strange background, too, that we just alluded to in the earlier part of the show. And she didn't know. He didn't know that she had that background That's when he married her. It came as a complete surprise to him. 
Candy Jones had worked for U.S. intelligence, but it wasn't just U.S. intelligence. This gets into a whole other area, and it's an exciting area. I think it's going on today, and I think it, it, it directly relates to what we're talking about in the UFO cover-up. Candy Jones in the 1950s. This was put in place not really after the war, but the subject is so big it's really tough to, to turn into a nugget, so to speak. But in the United States, in the 1950s, our government and the different branches of that government realized, and this actually goes back to Corso that I don't want to dwell on. I'm not pumping the book, but I don't want to dwell on it. What we realized, we didn't realize this in the 30s and the 40s. We were too busy fighting a war and fighting depression. But what we realized in the 1950s was that there were troops that were kept back in Korea. This is really how Corso's public career began, that were kept back in Korea. Uh, they were never released by by the communist governments, by the North Koreans, by the Chinese, by the Russians, when they used their identities to create the perfect spies. Ian Fleming talks about this in a fictional world, but he knew about this in fact, that the Russians invented mental programming. They, uh, Pavlov and his dogs, right? They invented that. And they used those same techniques to program spies, to program the ultimate spies. And when you want to program an, an ultimate spy, you do it by creating a, a new identity for that person to cover the person's real identity and you use triggers just like Pavlov ringing a bell and the dog salivate you use triggers so the spy will react in certain ways I'm doing this I'm, I'm, I'm going into this to show the why of Candy Jones not just that there was a Candy Jones doing this that person will react in a certain way we knew the Russians were doing this they had the perfect spies the perfect spies when we learned this and realized they were creating Manchurian candidates. This is where Army had PSYOPs, psychological warfare, psychological operations. It's still in existence today, where you actually go in and you program people to do certain kinds of things. And in Corso's boss at Army R&D was a man called Lieutenant General Trudeau. In his memoirs, which I've, I'll say this again, Anybody can get a copy of these memoirs right to the Army War College. They're not classified. Trudeau talks about Army R&D's experimentation with exactly the kinds of programming we're talking about with Candy Jones. We've discovered what the Russians know and what the Germans did, and that is how to program people using all kinds of techniques, drugs to distort reality, LSD uh, to distort reality. Uh, basically, you shake a person's mental frame up and you recreate the mental frame. And that's the whole purpose of, of probably the best movie on the subject was the original Manchurian Candidate. Mm. All right? So in the original Manchurian Candidate, at a certain point, the various members, I think it's one of Frank Sinatra's best movies, are the various members of that unit that was taken in North Korea. And remember what they were doing in, during the Korean War. This is really important for the Russians, for the Soviets, I mean, for the Chinese too, but really for the Russians. The Korean War was it was just like chumming, that they wanted United States military technological secrets, and the Soviets were planting, that the KGB was planting a whole, I'm not going to say fifth column, but I'm going to say a cadre of operatives in the United States. You know that those people, by the way, who were behind the Dulles brothers in urging Truman to support the National Security Act in 1947, which was obviously the creation of the CIA and the National Security Agency, people who who were behind that on the European side were Kim Philby and that whole group in Cambridge who it later turned out were KGB operatives.
top of it. Apropos of nothing, Bill, I'll just say this. The fellow who played this Korean psychologist who did this mind control, Kai D. Yeah, uh, that great actor. He was on the Hawaii Five O. That's right. He was also a regular on the Long John Neville show. That's exactly right. That's precisely <laughs> right. Full he, circle. A very famous figure, yes. In that movie, there's a certain point at which all these test subjects suddenly become, and their only purpose was to say, oh, this person was a hero. He saved us the Lawrence Harvey character. It turns out that they begin to have, to memories begin to pop up in their dreams. This is what happened to Candy Jones. This is a really big subject. As Wilder Penfield discovered in his experiments at the University, I think of Montreal, the University of Toronto, all the way back in the early 60s, those experiments turned into two very famous pop psych books. I'm okay, you're okay. Remember that book? The beginning of transcendental psychology. Oh, yeah. Right? And um, the games people play. That was a movie. Well, Eric Burns' great book on the games people play. The work that Wilder Penfield did was he was dealing with epilepsy patients. This is why it's important to hold Candy Jones' story. What he would do is, in mapping the cerebral cortex of these people who suffered from epilepsy and other kinds of diseases, he would stimulate a mild current of electricity, two electrodes, on the surface of the cortex, and suddenly that individual wouldn't just remember something, right? I remember I was a kid, I was in Boy Scout camp. A spider climbed into our bunk. We all went crazy. No, it wasn't that. The person was actually in that situation and had this dualistic response. I know where I am. I'm on an operating table in, in a hospital, in a, in a medical school here, but I'm really there. It's 1943. I'm walking down uh, Le Champs-Élysées. You know, the Nazis are all over. And this person is talking about that. Well, so each person then has this kind of Proustian moment, right, from eating this Madeleine cake right and actually being in the situation again that's what uh, this person Wilder Penfield discovered and Wilder Penfield later became part of MK Ultra well that means that nothing is ever lost to the human brain it's always there so even though these subjects and the Manchurian candidate and Candy Jones were told to forget everything they'd been told to forget their orders nevertheless those memories existed almost as though they were physiological patterns of neurons in the brain. You'd have to go in there with a meat cleaver and take them out. Uh, they were there, and they began to surface. They began to break through this consciousness barrier. And where you break through, of course, is in your dream state. Uh, this is where my academic credentials are. In the dream state, one of the things your brain does is it allocates to, like a disk drive. I mean, it's, it's basically, this is like computer memory, okay? In fact, computers were created in our image, okay? What happens is that the brain brain begins to allocate various spaces to certain kinds of memories. If I need your phone number, Gene, and I need it, I need it, I need it, I'm calling you every day. Now I put it in the BlackBerry, but I'm calling you every day. I don't want to have to go from with a BlackBerry on the 405 and at 4 o'clock at LAX, so I'm going to just remember it and just so I have it. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. 
here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I have to remind our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We invite you to send your email to news at theparacast.com and to visit our website at theparacast.com and participate in our message boards. We have Bill Burns joining us, talking about, actually talking about mind control, talking about the famous Long John Neville, talking about Candy Jones, who married Long John in his later years, and her experiences as a CIA agent. The thing, though, guys, in talking about this topic, when you start talking about mind control and programming, you know, we, we start to dredge up other related topics, like one that I've been doing some research on recently, that a couple of friends of mine were telling me about, the Montauk Project, which ties back into the mind control stuff. And as you start to read this, Gene and Bill, I mean, you come to the conclusion that this is all kind of silly. And not only that, but you start to wonder, you know, Bill, you were comparing computers to us, that we, we've created computers in our image, and I agree with that to a large degree. Just like computers, our brains are not flawless. You know, we have crashes. We have people who lose the capacity to think rationally and in some cases never get it back. And it can be something as trivial as some kind of a traumatic episode or as serious as some kind of a serious drug reaction. So the problem with this whole thing, and it kind of brings us back to the point I made before, how do you deploy rational analytical thought to understand where the boundary is of fiction and reality when we talk about these topics. This is something I think we all need to develop as a way to understand when we're confronted with the real deal, to know that it is the real deal. I'm going to take an extreme position, and I'm going to say that there is no boundary, that literally, if you want to take it to the extreme, every single human being, because of who and what we are and how we're built, every single human being exists in its own casing and its own psychological and perception casing that is really a series of electrode flashes, electrical flashes, instantaneous, by the way, electrical flashes across the brain that defines reality in the way that person sees it. So as you and I are talking right now, I know this sounds philosophical, but I really do believe this, as you and I are talking right now, no matter how much we agree with each other on the surface, fundamentally, David Biedney can only perceive and understand through David Biedney's filters, and William Burns can only perceive and understand through William Burns' filters, period. We come up with conventions that allow us to agree. Linguistic conventions, the meanings of words, the meanings of concepts, shared things. But, I mean, you and I know, I mean, well, we're sitting here saying we have shared concepts. Now, look at what's going on now with Pope Benedict and his commentary mm. on uh, these various media evil emperors and discussions with the Turks 
about the meaning of Islam. Here's a case where I'm not going to comment on the rightness or wrongness. I'm going to say what really happened was the Pope is commenting on violence and religion. And what you get from various extremists is, don't call me violent or I'll kill you. That's their response. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you can call the Pope's remarks offensive. You can say he should apologize. Not. I take no position. I tend to think that Pope Benedict is much more savvy than people give him credit for. He's really a very brilliant man. You don't get that high in one of the toughest academic regimes in the world since the, since the Middle Ages without being pretty special. But here he is, and he's making an academic discussion. This is not something like this great pronouncement on Easter Sunday. This is an academic discussion to people where he went to school. Okay, that's, that's the level of this, right? Pope Benedict goes back to his theology department some, at some university someplace in Germany, and you're having a department meeting and discussing a minor aspect. Suddenly that becomes blown up, and you've got riots all over Asia. The point that I'm trying to make is, even in that situation, that just shows you two entirely different perspectives on a cultural level. So can you imagine now, in, in, and even people who don't believe it, I mean, you've got Iranians who are writing on, on various web lists saying, who cares about the Arabs? We're Iranians. We, we have our own issues. Don't worry about the Arabs and the Palestinians. Worry about the Iranians. So you've got all these agreement is a set of conventions. So David right. Redding is talking from his reality only. I'm talking from my reality only, and we have conventions that allow us to agree. So to answer your question about fiction versus reality, and how do you tell, and how do you think, where do you draw the line. The fact is, I would say to you, the line is the line that circumscribes you as an individual. It is the boundaries of David Biedney that circumscribe reality, and that's what the psychologist Eric Erickson said marked the first developmental crisis in a human being when this person is like two years old or one and a half to two years old. That's what defines what's known as the terrible twos for toddlers when they say, like my grandson, they'll say no to everything. Why? It's not because they're bad kids. It's that they are psychologically and I would suggest neurologically drawing a boundary between themselves and the mm -hmm. rest of the world. It's a critical boundary. Why? Because if that boundary is not drawn, person has no boundary. There's nothing separating that person's sense of self from the rest of the world and the person becomes a sociopath. And the ultimate sociopath is Ted Bundy. So what I'm saying is the reality is the circumscribed entity that is David Biedney, that's the reality. Everything else, David, is fiction. Yeah. It's almost as if we're making up our own reality separately as we you go. Are. Absolutely. You are. That's exactly what you're doing. From, from nanosecond to nanosecond, you are recreating your reality. And that's the whole premise of this Candy Jones business. If a power the CIA can get into your constructing your reality from second to second and distort that. And I have a new book coming out called Space Wars next March in which we actually talk about that from a military perspective. So look for Space Wars from Tor Forge by Bill Scott, Mike Kamados, and me. But anyway, <laughs> in that reality, in that reality, I have to sell books. Okay. Um, in that reality, if you break into that reality in some way, drugs, chemicals, torture, anything, you can 
restructure that reality the way you want it. The issue is, though, what was your personal reality will resurface. And that's exactly what happened to Candy Jones in the 1970s when all that programming, remember she was sent out to kill people, she was spying on people, all that reality began to resurface and created this disastrous post-traumatic stress. And that's what Long John Nebel had to deal with. And in her dreams and in her therapy, the full story of the programming of Candy Jones, written by who, Donald Bain, I think, came out. And that's how the story of Candy Jones came out and one personal aspect of MKUltra. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're dealing with our own realities here. And I want to remind you that we welcome your real emails. Send it to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. And you're also welcome to visit our forums, our active wild and woolly forums at theparacast.com. We're talking to Bill Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine. Go to ufomag.com to learn more. Apropos of this, this seems to lead to another kind of memory retention and discovery, UFO abductions. What's going on there? Do you think that represents the real contact with extraterrestrials or some sort of military mind control, some games they're playing? I privately think it represents both. If just one case, if the Betty and Barney Hill case is true, that's the other reality. Mm-hmm. That means abductions are real. I would think that the overwhelming majority of abduction cases are either delusional or military abductions. Why would the military abduct? I mean, we can go into that. I think there's a whole culture in ufology called the MyLab culture. People who claim to have been abducted by the military, people who were abducted for specific reasons by the military. Is it mind control? Why is it mind control? Why would they do it? We can come up with a lot of reasons for it. I know that, that in the case of, let's say, a Rick Doty, who talks about being a disinformation person in the military, Rick Doty mentions that um, he was particularly tasked to kind of send Linda Moulton Howe down the wrong trail by feeding her false information. Let's just say that there's a part of government, and I um, again suggest this to everybody, that I do not think the United States government is this monolithic entity. I think they try to be. I think that one of the things, but even to this day, the government really tries very hard to be this monolithic entity. I think that's one thing Dick Cheney tried to bring to this administration oh, yeah. was to center power so that they could be more or less monolithic to use whatever events fell their way to restructure those events and frame those events and categorize those events in such a way that it, that it enhances the power to become monolithic because, let's say, at his most benign, Dick Cheney believes that um, we're really a rumbling jalopy. And rumbling jalopies with all this talk of freedom and dissent and all this stuff, get rid of it. doesn't help anybody. You want people to go to work, make money, pay taxes, watch TV, be happy, buy drugs, uh, buy prescription drugs, buy booze, and basically that's it. A nice society earning money. Kind of like that uh, George Lucas movie, THX 1137 or something, right? Oh, that was a nice society? That was a nightmare. Well, I think that's part of this reality for, for, the, for the government we have. Just do it. Shut up. Earn your money. We'll take care of you. Be happy. Without being too political, we don't work that way. One of my cousins said a long time ago, because 
I was complaining, this was back in the 1950s, frustrated youth, right? Why can't we put up a satellite like the Russians? They're beating us. And I remember being at a party with my cousins, my older cousins. We were saying, gang, so mad. Why are they doing this? This one older cousin, more like an uncle, said to me, Bill, you don't understand. In a dictatorship, you can get anything you want when you want it because a dictatorship has the ability to focus. He was, he was a lawyer, a whole family of lawyers, because the dictatorship has the power to focus the government on particular things. So if the Soviets want to focus on space exploration, everything else will suffer and they will explore space. The United States is not a dictatorship. We have various interests, different interests, and they all have to be satisfied. So it may seem less competent. We will get there, but we'll get there at a different speed. And that has stayed with me because it's a really brilliant concept. So here we are today, and if for some reason we, we have this id monster, right? Remember Forbidden Planet? It was the id monster of the Krell people. Well, our id monster of the Krell people, by the way, are Islamo-terrorists. That's our id monster, okay? We, in part, created them. They're partly real, partly created. So we create that the power of nightmare. And in so creating it, we need to have an entity that can fight that. So, so that's really what's going on. So you have to program the masses. Shane didn't invent this. Uh, program masses yeah. to fight this. Well, if you want to program masses, you have to interfere with, David, what you just talked about. And Gene, you just talked about this kind of nanosecond construction of reality. There is no reality. It's not like the Matrix, but there is no reality. Reality is a figment of your imagination, a construct from one nano second to the other, this flashing of electrodes, this flashing of electrical signals across your neurons telling you that what light rays you're getting through your eyes and are triggering certain memories in different spots of your brain and physiological reactions through your renal system, all that, that's how you define reality. It's a loop, right? Anything that can break that loop can change that reality. So if you abduct Mary Murphy, right? You find Mary Murphy, Mary McConnell, right, walking along the street. You find that she lives a pretty everyday life. She's got friends. And you want to experiment. So you send an abduction team in there. They sedate her. They drug her. They program her. They do what uh, the folks did to the um, in the Manchurian candidate so as to create for her a reality that she's been abducted by aliens. Now, what do you get? you get a person talking like this. So if, if you wanted to turn this individual into a spy, right? You believe that she works in, and let's just make it really credible, right? She's Pauline Penpusher, who works in the claims department of the Acme Insurance Company. And they're getting a lot of claims from a lot of drivers, a lot of this, about things that the government deems suspicious. So instead of just J. Edgar Hoover sending somebody to sit down with Pauline and saying, listen, you can help your country, you want her to do things for you that she has no memory of. And you want to create kind of like a digital tape, a biological tape recorder. She goes out, she sees things, she responds to things, she takes records, she's under all kinds of non-disclosure agreements and confidentiality agreements, but she comes back and she'll tell you. So you turn her into this walking biological tape recorder. How do you do that? She's been abducted by aliens. That's great, aliens. Blame it on the Canadians. These are aliens. Yeah. Right? 
And you now can get her to say anything, to report anything. Children are smoking pot. There you go. Tell the DEA. Go get these kids smoking pot. Her boss is part of an insurance scam, setting up accidents. Great. Tell the local sheriff's department. This is what you do. This is perfect. Again, Cheney didn't invent this. But the thing is, at this point, between television, alcohol, corn syrup, antidepressants and tranquilizers, you don't even need all this effort. People are basically drugging themselves. You don't need to go abduct them anymore. They're abducting their own souls. They're basically putting themselves in the ground, and that's what scares me the most. David, I would agree with you, except for one thing. The state what? said people are abducting themselves. They're not abducting themselves. What's the corn syrup in? Who do you think is pumping antidepressants to the medical profession and over TV? Oh, well, yeah. No, my point is, Bill, people have allowed this to happen. You know, the society has been subverted, and no one stood up and said, we're not going to take this. People bent over and took it. And I think that when future historians look back on this time and they try to analyze what happened, the fall of the American empire, this is the conclusion they're going to come to. People sold it out. Hey, this is a discussion, guys. This is a discussion we could take to another episode, but I think we're out of time on this one because I think we have to put David and Bill together to talk about a lot more things and to agree or disagree and we'll going to adjourn that for a future session, right. a future reality. Right, then let's just say to everybody, um, and to you, David, and to you, Gene, Happy New Year. And, Thank uh, you, sir. We, can, uh, we will be connected in October. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for joining us on the Paracast, yeah. and Happy New Year to you, too. Thanks a lot. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 